Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Before we begin, I, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might really, really enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls and hackers and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel this, this giant mystery with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, even a former Russian KGB agent. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Semple. He goes on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. You can listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the ongoing history of new music. Do it. Trust me, you'll love it. Listen, before we start the show today, a quick note. Thanks to you, the Ongoing History of New Music podcast has been racing up the podcast charts, and we've been receiving a bunch of email and direct messages from fans of the show that you wanted to hear more episodes. Okay, done. We've heard you, and we're happy to do just that. So we're ramping things up around here. You will now get an additional Ongoing History of New Music podcast every week all summer long. So that's two shows for the price of, well, none. So get it. I mean, show is free. Okay, wait. Also enjoy this week's episode. Here we go. There was a time, not that long ago, when indie music was ignored by most people. The thinking was that if the music was any good, then it would have been picked up and released by a major label, right? And there was some merit to that argument. There was a time when the major labels, back when there were six or seven of them, scooped up all the best stuff. And they could afford to take those kinds of chances back then. The indie labels were, for the most part, left with the dregs or the stuff that could not be sold. I, I know, I know, that sounds really short-sighted and elitist and unfair. But there really was this perceived imbalance in quality, generally speaking anyway. Indie and alternative music was looked upon as the domain of weirdos and outliers. Stuff that just wasn't good enough for everybody to enjoy, if anybody. For the musicians who made that kind of music, the labels that distributed it and the fans that enjoyed it, well, this was fine. They were penned off in their own little parallel universe, free to do things as they pleased without any kind of capitalistic interference. So this music lived in its little Petri dish and grew and grew and grew. And by the time we got to the early 1990s, no one was in a position to ignore anything. This is part three of the history of indie music. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. We work really hard and look like we just got out of bed. Because you can't be indie if you show your forehead. We work really hard and look like we just got out of bed. Because you can't That's a band called Raw Dog with Indie Rock Hipster, and it kind of sums up the attitude a lot of people used to have towards indie rock. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. It took us parts one and two to get to the early 80s in the story of indie rock, and we'll pick it up from there. By the late 70s, many people in New York City had moved beyond the punk and new wave that had captured the world's attention a few years earlier. 
bored with the crowd at clubs like CBGB and disgusted with the materialistic concepts of New Wave, a short-lived movement centered in the East Village known as No Wave was born in the late 1970s. Now, No Wave was equal parts punk and avant-garde rock. Its adherents believed that rock and roll had become too conservative and that even punk had become institutionalized. No Wave bands often had no musical training whatsoever. And predictably, the music was negative and harsh and formless and noisy and often completely atonal. Groups subscribing to the No Wave philosophy included DNA, The Contortions, and Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. But one band was to emerge out of this sea of noise to become one of the most important and influential indie bands of the 1980s. Sonic Youth came together in 1981, and they became known for the use of feedback, guitars that were strangled with screwdrivers and drumsticks, and a wall of noise that was felt more than it was heard. Although Sonic Youth's music became more structured as the 80s progressed, there was always the sense that they were pushing the edge of the musical envelope. And thanks to a deal with Black Flag's indie label, SST Records, they were able to spread their influence throughout North America. Sonic Youth's best indie moment probably came in 1988 when they moved to another indie label called Enigma and released a double set called Daydream Nation. This is called Teenage Riot. Sonic Youth wasn't the only non-California band to get some help from SST Records. In 1983, they signed a three-piece Minneapolis band named after a Swedish board game. Husker Du would ultimately have a huge influence on hardcore punk across America. All three members took to the stage dressed in street clothes. No leather jackets, no mohawk haircuts. And although their music was loud and fast, the songs incorporated elements of a basic pop song. Melody and song structure was given equal standing with power and volume. The parameters of punk were pushed forward. Thanks to endless touring and strong support from SST, Husker Du was able to spread their influence to all corners of North America. And although the group later became one of the first bands to come up through the indie ranks to sign with a major label, Husker Du maintained their uncompromising do-it-yourself ethic right to the very end. At about the same time, Husker Du was stumbling through Ramones covers during their first rehearsals in bassist Greg Norton's basement. Another important Minneapolis band was coming together in a basement on Bryant Street South. In honor of their heroes, the Sex Pistols, the replacements quickly became known for their unpredictable, high-energy sets at clubs around town. Like Husker Du, their philosophies were firmly rooted in punk, but with even greater pop sensibilities. Adding even more power were leader Paul Westerberg's anguished confessional lyrics. His sensitivity might have been a strange counterpoint to the volume and the rawness of the music, but, you know, somehow it worked. When they signed to a local indie label called Twin Tone, the Mats became stars, at least as far as campus radio and the indie club circuit was concerned. Hey, 
Well, no one who ever saw The Replacements or Husker Du or Sonic Youth could deny that these bands were doing something special. It was still very difficult to get the word out. Word of mouth from nonstop touring helped. But the indie scene needed another form of exposure, and they eventually found it at the local university. By the mid-80s, college radio was becoming a very important and very influential factor in music. While most commercial radio stations were unwilling to play anything that wasn't on a major label and on MTV, indie bands were welcomed with open arms on campus and nonprofit public radio. Since neither type of station was dependent on ratings for revenues, they could afford to be more daring and more experimental than 99% of the commercial radio stations in North America, or even the video channels for that matter. For most people, the only place to hear the newest and most exciting music was on the local college station. Now, listenership wasn't huge, but as campus stations became more organized under national and international associations with conferences and magazines and, and even their own music charts, college radio became more and more powerful in the general scheme of the music industry. The synergy was perfect. Indie bands were often formed by college students. Their first gigs were usually in and around the campus. And when they went on the road, they most likely played in and around other colleges. So, it was only natural for these college bands to be supported by college radio. It was, and remains, a well-organized musical subculture. For some cities, it was an embarrassment of riches. For example, there are 11 universities and colleges in the Boston area, plus the prestigious Berklee College of Music. This means people from all over the world meet in the Boston area to share ideas. The indie bands that came out of Boston was pretty amazing. We had Mission of Burma, the Del Fuegos, the Lemonheads, Gang Green, the Throwing Muses, Dinosaur Jr., Juliana Hatfield and the Blake Babies, and of course, the greatest Boston area college band of them all, the Pixies. They were formed in 1986 by two roommates from the University of Massachusetts, guitarist and singer Black Francis, an anthropology major whose real name is Charles Michael Kitteridge Thompson IV, and Joey Santiago. They were soon joined by a former cheerleader named Kim Deal on bass and her friend David Lovering on drums. The Pixies immediately stood out, thanks in part to their sense of dynamics. Quiet verses gave way to explosive choruses using sonic youth-like chords, an approach that would eventually inspire and influence hundreds of aspiring musicians, including a kid named Kurt Cobain of Nirvana and Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters and Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins. Even non-musicians were enthralled. Chris Carter, the creator of The X-Files, named the lead character in the series Millennium Frank Black because that was the name Black Francis assumed after the Pixies broke up. Because they couldn't find an American label interested in their brand of experimental noise, the group was first picked up by 4AD, that adventurous indie label out of the UK. And it was while playing in England that the Pixies may have inspired the entire Lollapalooza concept. Let me explain that. When the Pixies headlined the final day of the 1990 Reading Festival, more than 30,000 people happily sang along. And legend has it that members of Jane's Addiction's management team were impressed by this display of raw energy. So, inspired specifically by seeing the crowd sing along with this particular song, they wondered if it would be possible to create the same kind of atmosphere in North America. And less than a year later, the first Lollapalooza show was staged in Arizona. And it all started with a live version of this song.
Not all great college bands came out of large college towns like Boston. The most successful band of this generation came out of a town an hour east of Atlanta on Highway 78. Just 70,000 people live there. And 20,000 of them are students at the University of Georgia. The Athens, Georgia music scene began in the mid-1970s with the B-52s and more obscure groups like The Fans and Pylon and The Tone Tones and Love Tractor and Method Actors. Shortly after the B-52s began to attract attention, a record store clerk named Peter Buck struck up a conversation with an art student who was always looking for strange 12-inch singles. His name was Michael Stipe. Encouraged by the success of their friends, the B-52s, Peter and Michael picked up two musicians from Macon, Georgia. There was bassist Mike Mills and drummer Bill Berry. And like every other band that was part of the tiny Athens scene, they managed to find a gig playing at a birthday party of a friend in a deconsecrated church. On April 5th, 1980, the night of that party in Athens, at least four other groups were using the name R.E.M. But because no one ever challenged the Athens group, they got to keep the name. And besides, R.E.M. was certainly a better choice than some of the other names they were considering, like Slut Bank and The Male Nurse and Twisted Kites. R.E.M.'s first record was a seven-inch single made one year and ten days after they played that party at the church on Oconee Street in Athens. They called the song Radio Free Europe. Here's the original. R.E.M.'s rootsy, made-in-America, anti-synthesizer guitar pop stood out from the British New Wave that dominated new rock in the early 1980s. R.E.M. became a staple of college radio across North America, and as the band's popularity grew, more commercial radio stations began to catch on. Album sales grew from the tens of thousands to the hundreds of thousands, and then finally into the millions. Then, in 1988, the group accepted an offer to jump from IRS, their indie label, the one that they'd been with from the beginning, to Warner Brothers, the largest record company in the world at the time. Husker Du had recently done the same thing. And at first, there were whispers of sellout, but both bands stuck to their creative guns. And this is really important. Because they were able to do that, they showed that you could record for a major and still maintain your indie attitude. I need you to hang on to that thought. R.E.M.'s rise from frat boy band to intelligent, articulate, and politically aware superstars paralleled the ascent of indie music in America. For many, R.E.M. was a door into a universe of rock and roll that had gone undetected by the mainstream for more than a decade. The growth of R.E.M.'s popularity was also a testament to the power of college radio. The major labels began paying attention to the indie scene, they needed to see if there were more bands like this. And there were. But the next indie wave wasn't to be found in Athens. It was a continent away, in the Pacific Northwest, where the music was slower, the guitars louder and lower, and where the uniforms were made of flannel. Several years earlier, a young musician from the logging town of Aberdeen, Washington, named Buzz Osborne, began giving out cassettes featuring his favorite punk songs, all indie bands, TVI from the Stooges, tracks from Bad Brains and Black Flag, and Buzz gave these tapes only to people he considered cool. It was only a homemade cassette, but people who heard this tape changed the world of rock and roll forever. Hardcore punk mixed easily with hard rock in Seattle. No one considered it strange to be both into Black Flag and Aerosmith at the same time. And the result was a local, unique hybrid 
Rock that was sludgy and slow and low, and often every bit as negative and pessimistic as some of the more nihilistic hardcore acts. And there was more. Some of the lyrics seemed to be more introspective than usual. This new breed of Seattle band also seemed to have its own look, but that was totally unintentional. Most members of the music community were too poor to afford cool new wave outfits or the spandex and big hair look of the big mainstream rock bands of the day. They had to settle for the functional logging industry clothing that they could find at the local thrift shop. But this emerging scene didn't really have much of an identity. It was pretty fractured, actually. It was looking for some kind of focus. But then in the fall of 1985, several local bands contributed material to a compilation called Deep Six on a label called CZ. Although it took two years for all 2,000 copies to sell out, this was a really important record. For the first time, people could hear what was happening in their city. And one of the groups on the album was led by one of the people responsible for distributing those legendary homemade punk cassettes. It was Buzz Osborne and the Melvins. That's some of the earliest sounds of grunge, arguably the most important alternative sound of the 1990s. And it started in the local Seattle indie scene. All of it. And it was seeded by other indie music. Other groups to appear on the Deep Six compilation included a new band called Soundgarden, a band called Green River featuring guitarist Jeff Ament, who would later go on to form a group called Pearl Jam. Another member of Green River was Mark Arm, who had a day job at the warehouse at Muzak Corporation. In the early 80s, he wrote a letter to one of the local entertainment weeklies describing his pre-Green River band as pure grunge. And this letter seems to be the first time anyone referred to this Seattle sound using the G word. Mark's buddy and co-worker, Bruce Pavitt, was also a big fan of the local music scene. A former music writer and college radio DJ and record store owner, he was inspired by the Deep Six compilation and decided that he would do something similar. So borrowing $20,000 from his father, Pavitt formed a company he called Sub Pop and worked out a deal with Reciprocal Recordings, a local recording studio. If anyone cool or interesting passed through the studio, they were to be referred to Sub Pop. Enough bands eventually submitted tapes by July of 1986 for the company to release a collection called the Sub Pop 100, subtitled To K-Tell With Love. And although the album only featured two local acts, it was at least a start. By the middle of 1988, Sub Pop was considered to be a pretty cool little label. The roster featured local indie groups like Soundgarden and Screaming Trees and Mudhoney. And as an added touch, the company started the Sub Pop Singles Club. For an annual fee, subscribers received a brand new limited edition indie single in the mail every single month. The very first single of the month started arriving in mailboxes in November of 1988. It was from this obscure trio from a tiny logging town called Aberdeen, Washington, the same place as the Melvins. And they were called Nirvana. Not only would Nirvana eventually be the savior of the financially strapped sub-pop label, but they would also become the focus of a worldwide interest in grunge. But that was still a few years off. Meanwhile, things were happening quickly in Seattle. Major record labels had heard about the developing indie scene and were in town snapping up some of the bigger bands. 
Alice in Chains was signed by Columbia. Soundgarden defected to a major. And then there was the fallout from Mother Love Bone, which eventually resulted in the formation of Pearl Jam, who also went right to a major. Nirvana hung on as an indie with Sub Pop for a while, but then the label sold them off to DGC Records, which was part of a major label conglomerate. And one of the big reasons Kurt Cobain decided to make the jump from indie to major was because Sonic Youth had signed with DGC about a year earlier. To Kurt, if it was good enough for Sonic Youth, well then, it was good enough for Nirvana. Indie artists and indie labels were making noise elsewhere too, and we'll take a look at those situations in just a sec. Hi, this is Alan Cross. Welcome to the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast, our weekly exploration of the stories and characters that made modern music what it is today. We want to make this podcast one of your favorites. So if you love the show, do me a favor, tell a friend about it, or rate it on iTunes if that's your thing. We'd really love it if you do that. Or you can just drop me an email with your thoughts to alan at alancross.ca. Maybe you want more information on something you hear, or maybe you have an idea for a topic for a future episode, whatever. I guarantee your response, alan at alancross.ca. Whether you're listening one at a time or binging on a bunch of podcasts all at once, we're glad to have you here. All right, let's talk music, shall we? Back in the days before the internet, the indie label system was kind of like the minor leagues. The small indie labels gave the artists the attention they needed as they matured. Groups developed at that level, and once they got big enough, a major label would swoop in and sign them away. We saw this with Husker Du and R.E.M. and Sonic Youth and Soundgarden and Nirvana. In many cases, though, the music was a little more extreme than what mainstream rock thought they were prepared to tolerate. Such was the case with industrial music. This stuff is way too heavy for most people, making it, let's face it, a real niche sound. Or at least it was for a while, anyway. So that meant that major labels stayed away. This gap, this small but strong demand, was filled by specialist indie labels, like uh, Network Records of Vancouver, a label founded by a band called Mauve when they couldn't find anyone to touch their stuff. Network found Skinny Puppy, a highly non-commercial industrial band who pushed the boundaries of electronic music and the use of samples. But it wasn't just heavy music. Later, Network would find a young Nova Scotia woman from a band called October Game and help nurture the rise of Sarah McLachlan. And Network was responsible for giving the bare-naked ladies a new lease on life. But let's go back to the heavy stuff. This is where we can talk about Wax Tracks of Chicago. It appeared around 1990. This was the home of Ministry, Front 242, Frontline Assembly, and dozens more. Then there was TVT. It started as a label that did nothing more than release collections of old TV theme songs. TVT stood for TV Tunes. But in the late 80s, it got into signing artists for original new recordings. Then, in 1992, it bought Wax Tracks. After that, the company expanded by doing deals with other labels and getting into publishing. And just so you know, Beyonce and Justin Timberlake are TVT clients. But let's back up to 1987. TVT head Steve Gottlieb signed this kid from Cleveland named Trent Reznor. Based on the demos he had heard, he thought he was getting a Depeche Mode-style band. What he got was actually substantially harder, and he was extremely annoyed. And so began a multi-year battle between TVT and Nine Inch Nails that was only solved when a major label stepped in to buy the rights to Trent and his work. Still, without TVT, we would have never gotten songs like this.
Nine Inch Nails from the days they were an indie band recording for Chicago's TBT Records. Around the same time that Trent Reznor was attracting his first bit of attention, a British electro group could argue that they were, in fact, the biggest indie band in the world. Depeche Mode was one of the first signings to Mute Records, which was started by a kid named Daniel Miller in his bedroom in 1978. He had a one-man synth band project called The Normal, and the only way he could interest anyone in what he was doing was to do it all himself. So he created Mute, struck a deal with rough trade record shops, and ended up selling 30,000 copies of a 7-inch single called Warm Leatherette. Warm Leatherette See the breaking glass in the underpass See the breaking glass in the underpass Warm Leatherette Daniel took the money from that single, Warm Leatherette by The Normal, and plowed it back into Mute, which eventually saw him cross paths with Depeche Mode. Between 1978 and 2002, Mute was 100% independent. The only dealings it had with major labels was through distribution, that is, getting the actual records and CDs into stores. Otherwise, Mute did what Mute wanted to do. So that means, in the early 1990s, when Depeche Mode was selling millions of copies of its Violator album, they were, in fact, an indie band. Add up all their album sales, and by 1995, well, they were one of the most important indie bands in history. Depeche Mode and what is a global indie rock hit, Personal Jesus from 1990. By the early 90s, people had begun to take indie and alternative music very, very seriously. And as the number of major labels shrunk, more attention was paid to the power and importance of independent labels. Okay, sure, the majors still controlled the majority of the music and the majority of the revenue, but something would happen to change the dynamic entirely. And that's next time on part four of the history of indie music. Meanwhile, let's connect somehow. I can be reached at alan at alancross.ca anytime. There's also my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated with cool and interesting stuff every single day. And then there's the newsletter, which comes out every day by 10 a.m. It's free, and you will never be spammed. Plus, I'm on Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. There is no reason why we can't cross paths somehow. Back to conclude everything with part four next time. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.